You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hi, guys. I say it every single day, and I will never stop saying it. Thank you so much for pressing play. We have a great show for you today. I just can't believe it. I can't believe I can't believe who we have on the show. You you just wait. I got to I got to do the introduction and then we'll get right to it. I'll try not to waste any more time, but we have a jazz legend on the show today right here. This man is incredible. The Lord has blessed him with many years in life, and in my opinion, he is not wasting his time. He has his hand in education and composition and he's one of the best bass players ever in the history of bass. In fact, he wrote the book on how to play bass. <laughs> and that's the truth. And we'll talk about that a little bit. I tried to cover everything. That might have been a mistake on my part. And I apologize. But grab what you can from this interview with living legend, Mr. Rufus Reed. Thank you so much, Mr. Reed, for joining us on the show today. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking. Now, I wanted to tell you one of the reasons that I chose to do this show. I was not aware of the options available to me as a musician once I graduated school. And one of the purposes of this show is to educate people about their options. And secondly, after making them aware to give them some steps they'll need to take to reach their goals. And one way we're going to do it today is by you sharing your story. But the cool thing with you, Mr. Reed, is that you're a living legend in jazz music. And you have also established yourself not only as a master performer, but a master educator and composer. So that's rare because you didn't just do one thing. You did three things in teaching and performing and composing. You're really the complete musician. So I guess we're going to start with you telling us how you got started on this journey. I'm going to take a guess that this all started from performing. The teaching came from performing. Is that accurate guess? Absolutely. I don't yeah. think anything can actually happen. Um, the playing is the core. Being able to play your instrument, uh, should you want to go in other areas, I think the uh, it's imperative that the playing be the core of everything. Everyone that I know of who have been mentors of mine as players or educators or even composers were players first, um, and then it evolved. If there's desire for other things to evolve, you know, uh, sometimes we're not aware of the things that we are capable of in the early stages of our lives or when we start to play music uh, i never really thought about being a professional until i kind of happened to be that way looking at the check from a day gig and the monies that i made from playing and they weren't a whole lot different at the time particularly and i said well i don't need this day gig and but then that meant i had to try to be more conscientious to keep that up, you know. Tell us the story. How did you become, I guess, so popular? (laughs) 
I well, know see, that took some work. Well, see, I never thought about being popular or right. any of that. Uh, I, I think what I wanted to do was play with uh, as many people as I possibly could. And, you know, many of those things never even crossed my mind in the early stages of my... Uh, I began to teach myself the bass uh, when I was almost 18. I was like 17. I was a trumpet player before. Um, but the bass kind of took over. And in terms of my passion and even the capabilities of the bass, I didn't know as much, but it satisfied me more. And I got encouragement from other people to keep it up. And so it was kind of just trucking along, trying to just uh, do what I thought uh, was correct by listening to recordings and just trying to emulate or imitate good. I think the key word is the to make yourself available to to work or if people like the way you play they might ask you to play with them and it, it actually has to start and even at the jam sessions when there's no money involved there's no nothing because you have to um, I don't know what it is uh, people kind of graduate to you and they kind of uh, it's um, like, for instance, if there's two bass players and one is a better bass player because he's been playing the instrument longer, but the other one feels better and has had half of the experience, people tend to go for the one that feels the best. And it's not about is he playing all the correct notes or if he's really um, playing... Uh, perfectly in tune and and all that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, um, and I think that is one thing that I I think people liked about my playing is they just liked the feeling that I brought to the bandstand. And and when they call you the second time, that's when you know you're starting to kind of get close to something. And then it's up to you to try to play as well as you did yesterday. And that in itself is hard. So, I mean, that that's how I got started. People began to uh, just, I mean, I loved it. And I guess it, that came across too. Uh, all that, the, the way it feels. And um, I listened to the recordings and I tried to emulate, you know, my heroes like Paul Chambers, Ray Brown, uh, as Percy Heath, as best as I possibly could could knowing not much of anything but um but when other people tell you and they keep calling you that's that's when you're starting to things are beginning to kind of come together so for you you told us just now that you realized that your day job and your playing were bringing in about the same amount of money for you first of all i'm just curious your day job was it music related not at all okay I was working, I, uh, I had just gotten out of the military and I was living with my brother in Seattle, Washington. We're talking 1967 now. Okay. And um, he offered me to live in his home with his wife and two children 
because I didn't have that much money uh, and I hadn't gone to college yet. So my, but as soon as I got out of the service, because that's when things began to really kind of click for me in terms of what I really wanted to do. And that was to play the bass. So I had two very strategic years that my brother allowed me to have. I didn't have to pay any rent. I didn't have to buy any food or any of that stuff, but just go to my lessons and go to jam sessions and practice. All right. So you pretty much just led me into my question. I wanted to know what was your strategic plan to make sure that you could play to sustain yourself? Well, I didn't know I could sustain myself even at that stage, but I knew if I really wanted to try to be a professional, I better learn how to play this thing better. I mean, it was just a common sense to me. And there were no jazz schools, but I didn't want anybody teaching me how to play jazz. I wanted them to teach me how to play the bass. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, documentation on how to play this instrument for hundreds of years with the classical uh, background in, in books. Uh, I mean, uh, Italian methods, French methods, uh, German methods, uh, uh, etc. To learn, I mean, they were all incredibly, and I couldn't play none of them. You know, so I I, I had to start learning what that was before I could really say I was being a professional, a bass player. Uh, so I sought out a teacher as quickly as possible. It just made sense to me. And my first teacher didn't was a classical player, and he didn't really want to teach me because I was a jazz player. At least I thought I was anyway. But I convinced him that I was serious, and uh, I worked at it. I just worked worked at it to the point now, I mean, that my first teacher, James Harnett in Seattle, he's no longer living. But after about three or four years, he was very proud to tell people that I was one of his students. But he didn't really want to teach me at, at the outset. But I think that's the one of the things I had to prove to him that I was serious. And I think players have to prove to themselves that they are really serious because you do you will do what it takes, whatever it takes. I don't know. It's different for everyone. But for me, this is what I needed to do. And he prepared me to play and to uh, play music well enough that uh, I could audition to uh, these universities, which was because I really wanted to go back to school, but I didn't want to be just do anything. I wanted to be a musician uh, playing the bass boy that was a big job but it worked and uh, i and i'm thankful to this day that those early years uh, really kind of uh, set the tone for me to sustain myself even to this day i still use a lot of the things that i learned uh, back then because uh, you never stop learning you know was there like a specific point for you in your mind when you thought, okay, I'm, I've reached my goal? Mm, no, I mean, I, I never even think about that. I mean, once you start playing, you just want to stay playing. That's right. Once the phone stops ringing, that's when you're supposed to get worried. <laughs> yeah. You know? But I, I began to meet 
a lot of players who challenged me. They liked the way I played, but they were playing some music that was I didn't really understand or I didn't know much about. There was a guy in Seattle, Washington. His name was Joe Brazil, a tennis saxophone player from Detroit. Uh, he was very close and made uh, one or two albums in the later years of John Coltrane. They were very close friends. And so we would play a lot of some of that music. He's on this record called Ohm, which is uh, kind of, this was when Train was really stretching out. Uh, but he also introduced me to Tad Dameron's music. And we used to play a lot of that music. I never heard of T Tad Dameron before, but the music was great. And then I listened. So, I mean, as much as I know, there's always a whole lot that I don't, I don't know. And that will never cease, hopefully. Uh, but in those early stages, this was really great for me because I, because when I finally left Seattle and moved to Chicago, I had some knowledge of how to could read music. That wasn't an issue. I knew how to follow a conductor. That wasn't an issue. And I knew about being on time. So that wasn't an issue. I didn't do any drugs. So that wasn't an issue. So that left me way ahead of a whole lot of folks. So, you know, then I got I got into situations uh, because some other people couldn't get in those situations. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because uh, I'm, it's really starting to be a, th a theme here. Um, yesterday we talked to George Colligan, and uh, that would have been the previous episode before this one. And we talked about some of the same things. So... If people didn't know before, uh, hopefully that uh, you guys are starting to realize that besides just being a good musician, you have to be responsible and take care of yourself and be respectful to people. That seems to really be able to get you further than you might think. Without a doubt. Yeah. My first real boss, professional boss as a bass player was in Chicago with Eddie Harris. And... Eddie Harris was unbelievable. Even to this day, he's probably the, not probably, he is the most influential individual of my career. He taught me a lot about the music, integrity, honesty, uh, work ethic. And he, he's, he protected us. He taught us how to carry oneself. We were on the road a lot, but, and he's the one that actually told me to write my own book. But he says, now nah, I need you to do two things because most people don't do it. They don't finish the book. So you got to finish the book. And and then, then he says, I want you to own the book. And don't what, did, what do you mean by that? Publish it myself. Don't give it up. Don't oh, give it to anybody. Own the book. And I own, I did not know how profound that statement was at that time. It made sense to me, but I mean, I didn't really know um, how heavy that was. Um, and to this day, I still own, we publish, and Alfred Music is my distributor now. But Warner Brothers, but I own everything. They buy it from me. Oh, that's great. Wow. So these are the things that, 
that Eddie Harris taught me. You um, know. Let me interrupt, if I will. I just want to stress the point, guys, that, that Mr. Reed wrote his own book. And what year did you write that book? 1974. 1974, and today he's still earning money from that book. It's still on the market. Still on the market. That's amazing in itself that it's still on the market. Uh, there are many other books since then and really good ones, uh, but it's still out there. And in the publishing business, that's kind of like unheard of, you know. But the thing is that Eddie told me, which I'll never forget, he says, if it's your book and if it collects, if, if it collects dust and doesn't get sold a lot, that's your dust, though. He says, it's yours. And he taught us a, a great deal about being able to be in control. Being a musician doesn't mean just to be able to be a good player. It has, it has a lot of things involved. With I mean, to play music as a hobby, yeah, it's fine. You got another day gig doing this. To, uh, but when you actually are trying to live your livelihood to feed your family, pay your rent, do whatever you need to do, by playing music, there's a whole nother parameter of uh, things that you must be able to, to deal with uh, consistently. And a lot of it has nothing to do with the music. You Please know. tell us about these things. Well, being able, like I say, being able to be responsible, being able to go and meet other people that might have liked what you played and then they say oh wow he seems like he's intelligent maybe he knows some other things before you know it they ask you to to uh to perform at a place where you have to speak and you have to look good you have to be, you have to and you have to be on time these are people that don't really know about the music really don't care about the music but someone may have put you in a position and you um, you either survive or you don't and it really boils down to being able to do what you do. Uh, the I don't think people should. It's about the integrity of, of amongst your players. If you take a gig and you say, I'll be there, and then you wait the day before and you say, well, no, I, I, I got another gig and it pays $5 more, <laughs> then that, that, that sucks eventually. There are a lot of people who would do that because they need, they may have needed the money. But the thing is, this guy that you just blew off might be the person who could help sustain yourself for a long time. And then you, you go for the money, some more money. I don't care if it was $25 or even $100 more, especially um, um, it's just that... Uh, your integrity is stronger than anything and how people think of you as a, as a person. And you might, I know a lot of players who really are unbelievable virtuosos, but they're jerks and nobody wants to be around them. So, I mean, someone like a Jaco Pastorius, bless his heart. I mean, he was brilliant. I mean, brilliant with a capital be, but as a brilliant musician, but he was not, he was a stupid man. That's what took him out of here. Not being able to uh, 
carry over that brilliance into other areas that you have to do when you're not playing your bass or when you're not playing your instrument, uh, which is uh, a lot more than one might think. And I, I have to tell a story now. Um, that's how you actually left an impression on me. For those who don't know, Mr. Reed came to my school when I was in college, and he was one. He was a guest artist, and he went on tour with us. And uh, he was a gentleman, and that actually caught my attention. You know, everyone in the in the big band setting, you have a lot of different personalities. I was attracted to your spirit, Mr. Reed. So I just want to thank you for being the gentleman that you are. And uh, a few years later, I was in New York visiting a friend at Juilliard. And I literally bumped into you. I was not looking where I was going. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. No, I don't. But I wasn't looking where I was going, and I bumped into you. And, and I, when I looked up, I was shocked. Oh, my goodness, it's Mr. Rufus Reed. <laughs> and you just looked at me, and you smiled, and you said, hello, how are you doing? And then you recognized me. And, it, at, you know, when you recognized me, you said, oh, how you been? You know, so um, that just left an impression on me. And... Just, I just wanted to, hopefully that story helps to prove the point. And here we are, I, mean, I don't know, like 10 years later, <laughs> taking the time out to do this podcast. So, And now we're affecting even more people by you telling your story. So I just want to say thanks for that, too. Well, well, good. I'm happy, I'm happy to hear those stories because I don't really feel, uh, didn't, it doesn't take anything away from me uh, to... Uh, to be respectful to someone else, you know. And as long as I've been playing, I'm the only one who can actually destroy my my career at this time. Nobody else but me. So, yeah, so we, everybody's in control of their own destiny, so to speak, you know. You're going to be a jerk, uh, then you what goes around comes around. Um, let's change gears here. Uh, let's Let's talk about composing. Yeah, let's talk about composing right now. <laughs> what what got you into composing, first of all? Well, it's interesting. Um, if you've actually followed my career, I've had a great uh, opportunity to perform and record with some incredible, because uh, I was with Dad Jones and Mel Lewis Band for two wonderful years uh, of, of, of Dad and Mel. And a little after that had left, but then I, um, then I played with J.J. Johnson, and recorded with Jay, uh, with Benny Golson, with the Jazz Ted, with Jimmy Heath, and with Slide Hampton, and with Bob Brookmeyer. All great composers. All these are great composers. Now, when I would play their music, I said, "Damn, how do they come up with all that?" stuff you know and then i got a chance to play with some small group people you know um um andrew hill and of course with jack d Jeanette, um and uh, they're writing music as well and it was always intriguing for me to how do they come up with this stuff i never studied composition in academically or anything i just I always used to just buy books. And then if, when I was with Thad Jones and Mel Lewis Band, I'd, I'd look at some of the piano parts and look at some of the scores, just kind of 
a lot of it was just busy work. I wasn't really uh, in, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I, I thought I'd check some stuff out and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, after I stopped, well, with my group that I co-led with Akita Tana, it was a group called Tana Reed. We were together about 10 years. And each album that we uh, were on, uh, we, we said we're going to have a tune each on each one of these albums. And boy, I had to like really wow. I want to have my I want to have a tune on the record, but I don't have any tunes. I'm gonna have to start writing some tunes. And so, um, kind of hacking away at that. Uh, eventually, I started writing pretty good little tunes, songs, you know, song form. But playing with that, or playing with Bob Brookmar, who was writing longer forms. That's why you guys, when you when I came to see you guys there at, at at Northern, I was I was involved with the BMI Composers Workshop, and that's where a lot of that music got born because it was not arranging. You know, it wasn't going to take a song that had already been and to arrange it. That I mean, that's a skill in itself, and there's. But I, I wanted to find out what I could do. And the, the workshop, the BMI Composers Workshop, was that place where, well, man, there were about 25, 30 other composers, and we would meet every couple of weeks, and we would talk about this chord or this voicing or this phrase. And, man, I, the world stopped. It was fantastic. And... Uh, and then they said, well, why don't you write what you want to write? And of course, I didn't know what I wanted to write. You know, if you're going to write for television, you got to write what the television is about. If you're going to write for films, for a movie, you got to do what the director or whatever the scene tells you to do. If you're going to write music for a wedding or you're going to write music for this, or write, it's always prescribed, but you write what you want to write. Whoa, that's a hard one. I mean, then you begin to really see kind of, you have to kind of dig inside about what it is that you want to do. Do you want somebody to like your stuff or do you want, do you care if they like it? And that's a, that's a whole incredible place where I think the composers, once, once you have crossed over into it and uh, you're always... I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know, but uh, something, you just do it. And then, uh, but one of the great things about that workshop was that no one says, oh, man, that's not good. I don't like that. No. It's, they would say, are you, are you sure that's what you want? Kind of make you second guess, huh? You know, yeah, you always had to always kind of go back to the drawing board. Well, wait a minute, yeah, you know, and then you, um, and then one one, uh, Bob Brookmeyer was uh, was great. I never really took any lessons with him, but I was around him a lot during workshops, and I would go to some of his lectures. But he had heard that I had gotten this first commission, and he said, "I want to hear it." And I said, "Okay." 
And so I let him hear it, and then he looked through it, and he says, hmm, that's really nice. I'm seeing another side of you I didn't know exists, because I had played with him before. But uh, when you put stuff down on paper, things is, is different. But then when he showed me one thing, he says, well, what did you do here? Why did you do this? And I said, he said, this sounds like that. I said, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess that's, he says, well, why did you do that? And I said, well, he says, well, don't do that. That sounds just like that. So now when I write anything that quickly reminds me of somebody or something or something, I immediately erase it. Wow. Wow. And that's hard. That's hard to do, too. Because I don't want anybody to say, man, this, well, I mean, you know, there's nothing really new out here. True. This is true. Nothing. Uh, there's a ton of music that's been going on for hundreds of years. And there's tons of great music from all over the world, which makes it almost one to have the audacity to become a composer. But I think we need new music, um, but you got to put it up against the stuff that's tried and true. And if it can't hang, it's not ready. Yeah. Well said. That's, you don't have to say anything else about that. <laughs> I have a question about you being commissioned. You mentioned your first commission. Was that something you sought after or did someone come to you and ask you to do that? Well, actually the very first one was, um, being part of the BMI Composers Workshop, um, I happened to be there the year that uh, they BMI uh, used uh, the name Manny Album. Manny Album was a great uh, ranger and, and composer here in New York who died many years ago, but he was actually one of the founders, he and Bob Brookmeyer, uh, were one of the founders of the BMI Composers Workshop. And I used to uh, be told he was the the king of the half-hour arrangers. I mean, he could come up, you could give him a, a tune, and he'd have a, a big band arrangement that would sound incredible in a half hour. Just, just you could, I mean, because that's kind of what they had to do. And to me, that's amazing. But anyway, he was honored by putting his name on this commission. So being in the workshop, there were three of us that were chosen by the, the coaches of, of uh, and was Manny, uh, not Manny, I mean, um, well, the judges for this commission. At, at the end of each year, of uh, the workshop was from July to September. No, that's not right. No. It was September to July. So you had that whole oh, cycle. Wow. Okay. So at the end of the summer, like in June, then there would be a concert to kind of show your stuff. And they and the coaches were Jim McNeely and Michael Abeni. And they said, well, and they chose some of the stronger uh, pieces to showcase and have a public concert. And I was one of them. And then when this commission came about, uh, which was a $3,000 commission uh, to write a big band piece the following year, they chose my tune and two other people uh, to be
be eligible for the commission. And the judges were Dan Morgenstern and Lee Conant and Slide Hampton. And I won. Yes. I'm excited. Now, I feel like I'm there. <laughs> like it just happened. I was, it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I was a rookie. I mean, I was just learning to get, you know, uh, my stuff. And uh, one of the things that stuck with me uh, that I think is important is um, Dan Morgenstern said my piece was the only one that he wanted to hear again. And I think that in itself is like, when you play, do people want to hear you play again? Some people can hire you. They say, well, you, you tell them, you say, well, yeah, I know a trumpet player. Yeah, he's good. Yeah, you hire him. And then you go play, and they don't like you. But if they say, can you come next week? That means you did it on your own steam. You know, people can recommend you, but the, the, the trick is for you to get hired again. Yes. And uh, and again and again, because you leave something that they have to have. That's right. You know, on that on that note, I just want to ask your take on this. Um, yesterday we were talking about, uh, with George Colligan and he mentioned being forgotten sometimes may be the reason that you don't get called back. For example, if you're. Just maybe if you go out of town for a month. Well, yeah, outside, out of mind. So you that's know, true I for mean, you as well. You, okay. Well, I, I think it's something about uh, being able to be visible, even when you're not playing. That means people, you're alive. Um, and I think it's, uh, or if you, th there used to be a place here in New York called uh, Bradley's. It was a incredible. Uh, mecca of musicians playing, great musicians playing, but it was just a bar. But they had some of the greatest players. And when you were off, you went by. Say, hey, we're out of town. But the first place you would go to let people know that you're back in town. And it was like this. And unfortunately, now that place, Bradley's, has been, been not around for and to me it really kind of it didn't really we don't have a place like that excuse me mr reed we had mm -hmm. some latency and i got your point but it was latency so i want i just need you to repeat that again about bradley's okay yes uh, well bradley's was this uh place down in in the, in the village in new york where uh it was just a duo room piano no drums were allowed um, where Hank Jones, Tommy Flanagan, uh, Barry Harris, uh, uh, Eddie Gomez, Ron Carter, uh, everybody used to play there. And then I got a chance to play there. And everybody used to love to hang there. And it, it stayed open till like 4 o'clock in the morning. So if you, you would go by there after your gig just to hang out, and then people knew you were busy. You were out. If you were out of town, that would be the first place you would go back to and let everybody know that uh, it's happening. So um, it was really kind of a neat uh, place. And we need that place. And when that place, uh, Bradley died. And then eventually, after a couple of years, it just 
went away and there hasn't been a, a place quite like that. I think there's a place called the Zinc Bar now and then there's a, the 55 Bar and there's some other places uh, that are beginning to, and Smalls and places like that in New York that are beginning to, you know, cultivate a, a uh, base of musicians to be seen in. But Bradley's was incredible, unbelievable. And um, uh, so I miss that place greatly, you know. But that, that was, uh, uh, networking is really, really important that people do. Because out, out, of, out, of my, out of sight, out of mind. And if you stay out of sight for a long period of time, people don't know you must have moved or... or um, and if you're, it's kind of funny to say, but not so funny with my age. If people don't see you for a while, they say, oh, he must be dead, you know. So that's why, you know, I'm trying to stay as uh, visible as possible as much as I cannot stand to take the time for all the email and Facebook. And uh, I haven't gotten into this Twitter stuff yet, but. But I am on Facebook, and I and I see the need for it because uh, uh, because now we can reach just like with this podcast, we can reach other ends of the world. Yes, that you couldn't do uh, years ago. So um, uh, so the the trick is learning how to get you situate yourself so that other parts of the world can see you. Uh, or know about you, you know. I think that's pretty powerful coming from you as well. Um, do you, I'm curious, I was going to ask you about Facebook. I'm glad you brought this up. Do you add the post yourself or do you, you have someone do it for you? Because some people do. I, I do some of my own and, and uh, my wife does some of for me, uh, but we talk about it. And then the with this new recording that I have out now, Quiet Pride, uh, the Elizabeth Catlett project, uh, the record company has, uh, is doing some post and my manager does some of the post. We got a next week uh, or two weeks is my CD release event at the Jazz Standard in New York where we're actually going to have the band play uh, two sets, and I'm really excited about that. So uh, as we get closer to that, you're going to be seeing a lot of posts uh, about that. And um, uh, even if you go to the official Rufus Reed uh, Facebook page, you'll, you'll see all the stuff right now. You know. Do you or someone on your team, as far as Facebook goes, do you do the Facebook invitations or do you have an email list? Do you do both one or the other? I do a little bit of both. Okay. Um, there's so many, and I don't think anyone is any better than the other. It's just that, uh, but one thing about the, the Facebook with the, which I'm beginning to really see is the sharing because if you actually go to someone else's and then you, they've got a whole bunch of people on their uh, mailing list or whatever, or that they follow and you share it with them, then it just 
kind of spreads. It's it's kind of amazing how that works. Uh, so you buy, you might as well make it good because it, it, some uh, as you, as we know the the funky stuff spreads fast too. You know. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> so it's better if you have some input on what's on the internet about you. Exactly. So exactly. And that's, that's about being in control of about you know you don't say things that you don't want anybody else to know unless you yes. don't care of the consequences you know yes and also i noticed i'm guessing tell me if i'm correct or not but on your wikipedia page i think that you planted that stuff there i have never been on wikipedia <laughs> okay all right very well well somebody's looking out for you this is a lot of that stuff on Wikipedia. Anybody can put stuff on there. This is true. Yeah. Unfortunately, I uh, well, I, I I've seen it, but I've 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 never done that myself. Yeah. So I just want I'm thank you for talking about this with me because how I'm sorry, how old are you? Will you please share your I, age with us? Just just turned seventy, February tenth. Happy birthday to you and congratulations. Thank you very much. I just wanted to prove the point that how important social media is now that even Mr. Rufus Reed is using it still and he this is someone who might probably doesn't need to use it but does but, yeah, I, I need to use it maybe I I don't live on it like a lot of people you know because uh, my manager will call and say well did you see my email I said no because I I don't I've made it a point now in the morning. I don't, I pass the computer. I don't even touch the computer until midday because if I end up being there, I'm there and I've wasted the, my time. And a lot of it is some, there's a lot of stuff I don't really need to be dealing with. It's just junk. So uh, it wastes, so I have to be really careful there. There's so much more we could talk about, but we're running out of time. Uh, my goodness. I, okay, one more thing. Let's talk about uh, starting a program at William Patterson. <laughs> I know. It's like, yeah, I, got, well, I brought it up. I, I didn't, when I was approached to, to, to be a part of that, I turned it down because I didn't come to New York to teach. But Thad Jones was the artist in residence there. And when he left to go to Europe, he didn't tell anybody. But I had been doing some workshops with he and the quartet when, for a couple of years. And the, uh, the coordinator at, the, at that time, his name was Dr. Martin Criven, who had an incredible vision to actually have a program that was targeted to the marketplace, the real true jazz marketplace and he wanted real jazz musicians not just people who knew about it or read about it but people who were deep in the trenches of it and that was the essence of it i didn't want to be involved but then when i went out i said I, i'd check it out and i kind of enjoyed it i began to realize that i enjoy teaching people who want to learn. If they don't want to learn, I don't want to teach them. So uh, I didn't think I was going to be there for very long because I had already started playing with Dexter Gordon for uh, and, and was traveling. 
And he says, I said, I might be gone for two months. He says, okay, not a problem. I said, really? But he wanted me and he convinced, but I was able to get stay there because I, I had my degree and I had published my book and I had been on some recordings. That's another form of publishing. And he really fought for me. So that was what that was. How did you decide what to teach? Were you a part of that decision-making and what was going to go in the yes. curriculum? No, I was in control of, 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 of the curriculum. Um, I had been doing some teaching with Jamie Ebersold at that time uh, in the early stages. And um, I began to see how a lot of that stuff was working really well. Uh, but it obviously it was different because it was, you know, Jamie stuff is like within a week and you had to spread it out over a whole year. But the essence was to get as much playing time and then uh, people getting piano skills, not to be pianist, but to, uh, to be friendly with the piano and then be responsible for repertoires, et cetera, et cetera. Because, and if you're a trumpet player and you're gonna graduate, you're gonna come out in the street and you immediately are in competition with our farmer, Woody Shaw, Freddie Hubbard, Milton uh, Marcellus, Terrence Blanchard, and whoever else. So you better be able to play the trumpet. <laughs> Yes, this is so true. So this before people begin to really check your creativity out, you have to be able to play the horn. So these these are the things that that I was concerned about because I think those are the things that made me uh, who I am, and I hired the teachers that I respected as players, and then they let me know that they wanted to share their knowledge. And that's how we got started. Thank you so much for that story. All right, man. You're, you're a joy to have, and thank you so much for sharing with us today. All right, well, it's my pleasure, and good luck with everything you're doing, man. Thank you so much. That was our interview with Mr. Rufus Reed. I'm so thankful that we were able to have a talk with him on the show and Mr. Reed, if you're listening, thank you one more time for sharing your time with us. We are all very thankful. So, hey, guys, I want you to realize that Mr. Reed spent a lot of time developing his chops, so to speak, in, in composition and in performing on the bass. He spent time with mentors. That's something that we all need to do. Now, we have teachers, most of us have had teachers in the past, but I want to encourage you to continue to have a teacher if you don't have one now. No matter where you are in your development, having a mentor is an essential part to growth. And it's not only limited to having a teacher on your instrument. You can also have a teacher to teach you and help you in the aspect of of having a, a, a business because as an independent musician, you really are a business. You are your own business. So you can get help in that aspect as well. And on that note, Mr. Reed wrote his own book and he owns the rights to it even till this day. That's a really good example, I think. He took the advice 
of a friend who told him, write your own book, keep the rights, own it yourself, and you can do whatever you want with it. So how are you going to apply that lesson to your life today? What does that mean for you? Are you also supposed to write a book? Are you supposed to create some type of of school? Whatever, whatever it is for you, fill in the blank. But go ahead and get that started today in, in some form, even if it's writing it down on paper. You have been listening to Behind the Note Podcast, and this was episode number five. Please go ahead and share this episode. Right now, we're in the early stages of our development, and it's really important that we get the word out about this show. So if you know someone that might benefit or appreciate what we're doing here, tell them about it by social media post a link on your page on social media or send them a text message or an email with the link to the show and we'll be very thankful for that we'll see you in episode number six god bless